in light of the you know East Palestine trail derailment, you know, what are the biggest challenges you you see today in our country yeah. related to re- readiness to respond to hazmat emergencies? I mean, that seems like a case study of kind of what happens when things don't always go right. That is the million dollar question. Uh, but it's an important question and it, it's a it is a good news and it is a bad news story i think the good news is that these incidents just don't happen very often and i think that's part of the reason that when major incidents occur whether or not it's railroad highway any mode of transportation they get sensationalized the way that East Palestine did. But I think it kind of boils down to, you know, what should we be doing to make sure that emergency responders have the information and training that they need to first and foremost be safe. Welcome to the Environmental Transformation Podcast, where we talk with industry leaders, climate champions, and sustainability professionals who are making an impact in their businesses today. Each leader is solving complex challenges and providing solutions within their respective areas of expertise. And here's our host, Sean Grady. Hello, ET Nation. I'm excited to announce that I've updated my website that provides listeners more access to episode content and information about the podcast. Please take a moment and visit the website and sign up for email notifications and blog postings. Also, check out our sponsors page to see who supports the show. We can't thank these industry leaders enough. Finally, I would really appreciate if you would take a moment and post a review and rate the podcast episodes either from my website or from within your podcast app. This helps the podcast get more exposure on Apple Podcasts and other podcast networks. Also, please send me comments and recommendations on topics that you want to hear about. I hope you enjoy the new website, so check it out at www.seankgrady.com. Welcome to the Environmental Transformation Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Grady, and today's guest is Skip Elliott. Skip is, he has over 40 years of experience leading high profile and risk business operations in private industry and the federal government. He recently served as the administrator of the U.S. Pipeline and Hazardous Materials Safety Administration, FEMSA, from 2017 to 2021. And he received unanimous Senate confirmation And in 2020, he was appointed by the president to serve as the acting inspector general of the U.S. Department of Transportation. Uh, Prior to that, you know, Skip, let me I have to I have to let you read uh, listeners know all this because it's really great intel. And we'll let Skip kind of explain it a little more in detail. But prior to his public service, Skip also. He, he, was a, he served uh, in a distinguished 40-year career at one of the nation's largest freight railroads, Class 1 railroads, which is CSX Railroad. And he served as the vice president of public safety, health, and environment for 13 years of his career. And in that role, he oversaw extensive portfolio of, of uh, you know, all kinds of projects, including hazardous material transportation and safety, environmental compliance, crisis management, corporate security, infrastructure protection, and occupational health management. 
So Skip, welcome to the show. We're going to dive into a little more other things you've been doing, but hey, it's great to have you and I'm glad we can connect. Well, Sean, um, thank you for the invitation. I know the, the title of the podcast is uh, the Environmental Transformation Podcast, and uh, I was thrilled to get your invitation knowing that most of my portfolio is more on the hazmat side than it's been on the environmental side. So I congratulate you on having the courage to kind of move out of the environmental side into sometimes the more controversial um, hazmat side of the equation. Uh, no problem. I mean, you know, hazmats and be become problems in the environment too. So, you know, it's, it's all about uh, staying connected. Uh, you know, Skip, I had the pleasure of working with you when you were at CSX before you left to go to serve in public service. And we met in the situation room for a big derailment that happened. That was the first time I experienced Skip Elliott. And I was impressed, literally. I was like, well, this guy is, he's the boss and he, he knows what he's doing. It was a great experience. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you rose up the ranks of CXX, if you could, Skip, and how how that helped you take on the role of administrator of FEMSA. All right, Sean, I'll, I'll try with that. I, I guess... I really, uh, I guess, looking back, I categorized myself as a late bloomer. I, uh, I uh, grew up in a place called Elkhart, Indiana, which is in the northern part of the state. And uh, went to high school, went to Indiana University, got my degree in English and forensic studies and uh, had always wanted to go to work for the Secret Service. Um, when I graduated with a degree in forensic studies in English in 1977, a long, long time ago, um, it was the first year of the Jimmy Carter administration, and there was a hiring freeze uh, for federal positions. I had done a kind of an, uh, an initial interview with the Secret Service, but there was this hiring freeze. So kind of went back to my home and uh, knew that uh, probably for too long, my parents would get tired of me sitting around the house. So uh, I come from a railroad family. My my great grandfather, my grandfather, my sister, my brother, part time, all worked for the railroad. Um, and at the time, um, the railroad police department for Ben Conrail was was hiring. And uh, so I thought, well, OK, well, with that degree, I can go to work for the city police department where I had done an internship before my senior year. Or, you know, go to work for the railroad police department. Now, this was a this was a strictly financial decision because at the time the railroad paid eight thousand dollars more a year than the city police. And back in nineteen seventy seven, that was a lot. That was a lot of money. <laughs> so I figured I'll go do this for a little bit until the Secret Service called. Well, forty five years later, I'm still waiting for that phone call from the Secret Service. But hey, are you still listening out there, Secret Service? <laughs> yeah. It started me on my career for the railroad, and and um, although I started as a special agent, a railroad police officer, I really got curious about all the opportunities in the railroad. So I, I was a, a police officer for about five, six years, and then had an opportunity to go into the safety department for the railroad, and I did that. Um, uh, worked out of Chicago for about a year and a half and ended up getting promoted out to Philadelphia for one of our regions then. Um, and then from there, it just, it, it kind of escalated. I kept getting interested in other opportunities and found myself following opportunities in the railroad. 
uh, when Conrail in 1998, uh, technically, I guess it was, when Conrail was split between Norfolk Southern and CSX, I had the opportunity to go down to Jacksonville, Florida, and run the hazardous materials group for CSX transportation, which, uh, which I did for a while. And then the rest, uh, when you read uh, everything that I did while I was at CSX, um, I don't know how to put it really. It's just that like every opportunity that came along that perhaps nobody else wanted to do or had some element of risk to it kind of got tossed over to uh, the work that I was doing. And, and you know, when I retired in, in 2017, it was this wonderful group called Public Safety, Health and Environment, which basically was responsible for um, everything in the world of, of crisis on the railroad, environmental, hazmat, the police department. Uh, this, of course, after September 11th, there was a big focus on homeland security issues in the railroad, mm -hmm. but also right. had the opportunity to get involved in the medical department and employee assistance. So um, great career. I mean, I think I'm one of the, the most fortunate people uh, who ever worked on the railroad to have so many, so many opportunities during my 40 years. Um, I retired in 2017 after 40 years. I was ready to retire. I had built what I thought was a, an extremely strong team. Um, the, the folks that, that were coming up behind me were more than, than capable to run the organization. And it was also the beginning of a change in the railroad industry with the onset of precision scheduled railroad, which we, you know, which I kind of knew, uh, you know, would, would cause a tremendous change in the look and feel of the railroad industry in the U.S. So the opportunity was there for me to retire after 40 years, uh, to leave on a high note. And I decided to do that. Yeah. That's great. That's great. So, you know, you, you spent your time at CSX, you know, you, you, you've learned so much and then you get a call to public, go to public service for the pipeline and, 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 you know, safety material hazardous field safety group. I mean, the FEMSA, that was a big, a big, you know, like, Whoa, that was a curveball, maybe a big step up a little bit because now you're not just CSX. This is for the entire nation's safety, right? Pipeline safety. Yes. Yeah. Um, you know, FEMSA is responsible for two point then it's 3 million miles now, but then 2.8 million miles of the nation's liquid and gas pipelines and the 1.2 million daily shipments of hazardous materials by all modes of transportation, air, water, highway and rail. Right. FEMSA also has the responsibility of writing the hazmat regulations for all modes of transportation, which to me was a very unique Thing. But I, you know, FEMSA, before FEMSA was an organization called RESPA, the Research and Special Programs Administration. And, and during my time in the railroad, I had worked with FEMSA, I had worked with RESPA, and also had worked with the Federal Railroad Administration. Um, when I interviewed, um, I worked for uh, Secretary Elaine Chow, who I have tremendous respect for, because she was not looking for politicians or bureaucrats. She wanted practitioners. She wanted people that had run organizations successfully and that could come in and run the agencies within the Department of Transportation, much like a business and to take care of the people. She didn't always think that the people 
in the agencies at DOT had always been fairly treated. And she very much believed that, that employees needed to be treated with great respect. So um, no experience in, in federal public service, but I believe that, you know, if you're asked to go and do public service and you can, uh, you should. So, you know, I got an apartment and went up to DC and spent uh, close to the next four years uh, it probably in looking back and, and close to 45 years of working full time, probably some of the most extraordinary experiences of my career and probably some of the most enjoyable interactions with employees was during my time in Washington. Oh, that's that's awesome. I mean, so so, you, you know, after 40 years in the freight you know, railroad industry, you now you're proposing new hazmat regulations, uh, you know, and, and uh, you're leading federal agencies responsible for writing these regulations. What was that like? Yeah. Well, I suspect, uh, I suspect some of my railroad colleagues probably thought I went to the dark side. Um, but quite interestingly, it, it wasn't, it wasn't like that at all. I mean, first of all, you know, the first thing I learned is that the actual regulatory process is even slower and more methodical than than I railroad. Thought. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> On average, it takes about two years for a regulation to move from a notice of proposed rulemaking to the final regulation, and between those steps, there are so many reviews and checks and balances, both within the agency, but also within the, the Department of Transportation, which has its own bureaucracy, um, as well as the Office of Management and Budget, as, as well as Congress. So there are so many opportunities for a bill to be changed and modified, and all of that just is so incredibly slow and tedious process. At, at FEMSA, I may be a little bit wrong, but between pipeline and hazardous materials, there were over 30 regulations in the process at any one given time, either beginning or all the way to the end. Um, And I think for me, just just learning that process was most daunting. I was very, very, very fortunate. Um, My deputy uh, administrator, Drew Pierce, who was a former uh, president of the Alaskan Senate, and I might add another Indiana University graduate. Uh, <laughs> yeah, she she handled most of the regulatory issues, and she she was so very very good at it that it you know it 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 took a lot of the burden off of me because I just didn't have the same kind of insight she did. But right, I to, more to your point though, I I will tell you that the regulations are much more thoughtful than I think people think. I think the career staff at FEMSA who were responsible for writing the regulations really took an awful lot of time and effort to understand all the issues. So it was not just, okay, well, we want to write this really onerous regulation for rail hazmat transportation. It wasn't like that at all. There was there was a lot of give and take. And, and what FEMSA really tried to do was to create the most balanced safety regulations that they could. And I think for the most part of that, they were successful at that and continue to be successful at that. That's great. That's great. Well, so how did the transition go from, you know, into the the inspector general of the U S DOT? Cause that was another kind of like, wow. 
Yeah. <laughs> well, that was both surprising and abrupt. Um, it, this, this is how it all transpired. I mean, I, I was, I was familiar with the office of the inspector general and, and the inspector general who had recently retired because of some health concerns. But um, I get a phone call one Friday evening from the chief of staff, the, uh, the, the secretary's chief of staff saying, we want you to be the acting inspector general. And my first thought was, well, what did I do wrong? Uh, yeah, you know, his, you know, what, what, tell me more about this. And it was, it was uh, complimentary. Let's just put it that way. But they were looking for someone who, um, on an acting capacity, could go into the inspector general office, work with the career team there, to carry out the the important mission in the inspector general, which is a very independent. It's an independent entity within the Department of Transportation. Um, so I asked, I said, well, you know, uh, who wants me to do this? And well, you know, the secretary would like for you to do it. And the president wants you to do it too. And so I said, well, okay. <laughs> so it was the very next Friday I, I'm in, go into work and remind this is during the pandemic. Yeah. Right. I lived right across the street from the U.S. DOT building, I'd still go into the, the DOT buildings, big, huge, two city block, two big buildings, cavernous building, empty. Wow. And and but during the day, there were the cleaning people that came and sanitized everything mm -hmm. a couple of times. So it was probably the absolute safest place to be in Washington, <laughs> D.C. during the pandemic. Probably so. Yeah. But the following Friday, not much really was said during that week. I get a phone call. And it's from the White House saying, um, we're bringing over your paperwork that says you're the acting inspector general. And sure enough, they brought over a document signed by the president that said, you are now the acting inspector general until, you know, until you're told to do otherwise. This podcast is sponsored by the Alliance of Hazardous Material Professionals. As the premier membership association devoted to the professional advancement of hazardous material management, the AHMP membership includes thousands of the nation's leading experts in the environmental health and safety, sustainability, and security management field. The AHMP envisions a world where the earth is unburdened by pollution, everyone has a healthy and safe work environment, and hazardous materials are used and transported safely and efficiently. Their mission is to support their community by listening to its members, exchanging industry knowledge, providing education for its hazardous material professionals, and making our world safe and healthier place to live. If you want to learn more about the AHMP and become a member, go to www.ahmpnet.org. That's www.ahmpnet.org. I will tell you this. I think offices of inspector general get a bad rap. And I have to tell you, this, this was of my time in Washington working with the folks at the inspector general's office was probably the highlight of my almost four years. I enjoyed that job tremendously simply because of the senior, the executive staff that responsible for doing both the audits as well as the criminal investigations. 
uh, were just so welcoming. And the, on, the, on the criminal investigation side, they had never had an inspector general that had a criminal justice background. So there was this affinity with, with that group. And getting to learn about the work that they do and the, and, and the audits, just the depth and breadth of the audits that they do. And again, you know, some people think, well, inspector general's office come in just to find fault. That wasn't the case at all. I mean, they're very fact-based, very independent. Um, but they were just genuinely dedicated professionals that I just, I, you know, I still get the opportunity to talk and, and text and email with them on occasion and uh, just very, very much enjoyed that. And I'm glad that during my time in Washington, I had the opportunity to, to, to be part of that. That's awesome. I mean, that's, that's sounds a, like a really thrilling uh, opportunity is, you know, Hey, the president's calling you, Hey, we need you to hear. It's like, yeah. uh, okay, <laughs> I'll do well, it. You know, in, in, in all seriousness too, I mean, it, I didn't know what to really expect. And again, no, no real experience working within federal government. And that was probably the biggest challenge is just learning the ins yeah. and outs of maneuvering uh, and all of that. I mentioned, chief of staff for uh, the secretary and unfortunately uh, got to know him quite well. And he was very helpful in helping me learn, kind of take a fast track to learning some of these things. So, uh, but that tremendous, tremendously complicated, complex network going over to hearings on Capitol Hill and getting yelled at, not for anything that the hearing was about, but simply because I happened to be uh, somebody who was appointed by the president who was the president at the time. And yeah. uh, um, and that was interesting too. I mean, you learn how to, you know, the, the hearings are one things, but then, you know, you learn how to go and have dialogue with members of Congress on both sides of the aisle about important pipeline and hazmat safety issues. And more times than not, you found a common ground and, and sure. you you could move through. So once you recognize that there was this theater of the absurd, you know, then, then it kind of, kind of <laughs> fell into place. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, let's talk about some recent events. If we could skip, I think uh, it kind of, kind of goes back a little bit back to your, well, it'd be FEMSA days probably in hazmat days, but in light of the, you know, East Palestine trail derailment, you know, what are the biggest challenges you, you see today in our country yeah. Related to re- readiness to respond to hazmat emergencies. I mean, that seems like a case study of kind of what happens when things don't always go right. That is the million dollar question, um, but it's an important question. And it, it's a, it is a good news and it is a bad news story. I think the good news is that these incidents just don't happen very often. And I think that's part of the reason that when major incidents occur, whether or not it's railroad, highway, any mode of transportation, they get sensationalized the way that East Palestine did. But I think, you know, it, it, it kind of boils down to, you know, what should we be doing to make sure that emergency responders have the information and training that they need to first and foremost be safe. I mean, it has nothing to do with minimizing impact or damage to the commodities on the train, but put it into put it into perspective. So, you know, there's my numbers might be wrong, but there's about 20,000 incorporated 
towns and cities in the United States. Major metropolitan areas such as New York might have, what, seven, eight, eight and a half million people. But 75% of those incorporated towns and cities have less than 5,000 inhabitants. So, you know, you just look at the expanse of towns and cities and rural areas across the United States. Then you add to that, there are about 30,000 fire departments in the United States and about 52,000 separate fire departments. There's over one, I think this number goes back to like 2021, 1,041,000 firefighters in the US, uh, of which the bigger, that's the larger number of that uh, are volunteers. You know, those that have day jobs and, and volunteer their time to respond to medical and fire emergencies. But then keep in mind, too, that of that those volunteer firefighters, again, the number may be off a little bit, but there's about a 25 percent annual turnover for volunteer firefighters. So you've got that dynamic you've got all these cities, you've got all these fire stations, you've got all these firefighters now. Then look at the railroads. So the railroads operate in 49 states and 140,000 route miles of track. There's six class one major railroads in the U.S. that have about 92 to 95,000 miles of track. Uh, and then there's over 600 regional and shortline railroads that have the rest of that. Add to that just the sheer number of railroads and you know moving to every corner of this country. Right. Um, and then add to that, annually, there's about 2.3 million shipments of chemicals, fertilizers, and plastics. And of that, there are hundreds of thousands of those carry all nine DOT hazard classes. So when you look at all of that together, I think the biggest dilemma is, you know, how do you ensure that the right people are getting the right level of training with the right amount of frequency. Yeah. That allows, and then on that, and then you add another layer to that is that all has to be based on what is what is the transportation hazmat risk. Um, you know, is it is it going to be real? And then, if you want to complicate it either even further, you think about a typical merchandise freight train, which could hold hazardous materials. No two trains are the same. Mm -hmm. As Matt's different location and the train are always distant. So there's never any consistency if you do have that derailment, such as occurred in East Palestine, to know or expect what commodities might be involved or where they might be at in the train, just given all of those dynamics. Then and I always I always add this to the conversation. Keep in mind too that railroads are common carriers. So if you're a shipper of say vinyl chloride, such as it was or transported in the East Palestine derailment, if you're a manufacturer and transporter or shipper of a chemical and you follow the DOT regulations to properly prepare and package and offer that hazardous material, then the railroads have to accept that shipment and transport because right. that's their responsibility as a common carrier. Uh, and I think, I think a lot of, a lot of my pro railroad kind of hardcore philosophy got tempered during my time at, at DOT, but uh, there's just, they're just so much dynamics. How do you, how do you sort all of that? You know, the emergency responders are always looking for more training, uh, more money to do training. 
Um, the railroads are doing their very best to do as much training as they can, but their, their networks are so large. How do you make sure that you get to everybody with the frequency that you need? And then don't forget about, you know, another important ingredient there, that's the emergency planners and the emergency management. I mean, they're the ones that really need to help prepare their community and understand the risks involved in moving hazardous materials through a commodity. So it's kind of this unwieldy thing that, that I worry about. But again, it goes back to the good news story about it is that they just don't happen very often. Yeah. The yeah. problem is, is there's not, you know, one of the problems is I don't think there's enough muscle memory in how to respond to major hazmat incidents because they just don't happen that happen often. enough. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right. Exactly. Well, you know, um, you and I talked before we, we you know, had you come on the show, you recently wrote a white paper called considerations for ensuring effectiveness of U.S. railroad hazardous material training, preparedness and community outreach programs. And I read that document that you shared with me and it's very enlightening and and really insightful on the fact that, you know, there are a lot of gaps. There are a lot of considerations to think about. Um, there are some really good training programs that are going on that, you know, recognizably are really effective at helping respond to these things. But how should this really be kind of, um, you know, formalized in, in a more cohesive way so we can ensure, like you mentioned a minute ago, that muscle memory? How do we make sure people are constantly on the ready for these types of events to happen? And I think, um, you outlined a lot of these types of concerns in the white paper. And by the way, for the listeners, we'll share this document uh, if you, up on my website. You can get a hold of it um, and, and you can access it there for sure. I'll make sure everyone can get access to it. Yep. Skip's got a copy of it right there. It's a really great read. I'd highly recommend it. Um, you know, maybe talk a little bit if you could skip about, you know, how you guys pulled this together and um, you know, what, what's involved with this. Thanks, Ryan. And, by the way, that was the short title of the paper. I won't get involved in what the long title of the paper was, but uh, we just we just never got around to figuring out how we condensed the title. So the history of this document, which we submitted to FEMSA in, in May of this year, actually goes back during my time in Washington and, and in DOT. And um, Bill Schoonover, who uh, is the uh, associate administrator of hazardous materials safety at, at FEMS and somebody I've known for many, many years and is probably one of the most knowledgeable individuals in modal hazmat transportation I have ever met. I mean, he's, he's just a joy to, to work with. And um, we had many, many early morning conversations during my time at FEMSA um, about what was happening in the railroad industry. The railroads were going through this transition, moving to precision, precision scheduled railroad, railroad and PSR. And between FRA and FIMSA, we're getting a lot of, lot of, lot of information that perhaps uh, safety, not only employee safety, but transportation safety was starting to suffer because of perhaps, you know, what was perceived as curtailment of employees, much longer trains, and and in some regards, uh, some degradation of public safety programs that railroads had, had put into place. So we talked about the need to get a group of like-minded P 
people together that are involved in rail hazmat transportation and have an honest dialogue about what is being provided today by the railroads. Is it what the emergency responders need? Is it being provided in a manner where the retention is adequate? Uh, is the level right for, say, you know, the, the newest volunteer firefighter up to, you know, a very sophisticated hazmat team? Um, and are we getting to the right locations, you know, the metropolitan locations, but the rural areas as well? This episode is sponsored by TerraTherm. TerraTherm is a worldwide leader in the development and implementation of thermal remediation services for organic contaminants. They partner with environmental consultants, engineering firms, government agencies, corporations, and property owners to achieve their remediation cleanup goals. Their experienced project teams and patented technologies are based on over 20 years of successful project experience and R&D in the thermal remediation of soil, rock, and groundwater. If you are evaluating in situ remedial alternatives for organic contaminants, then it's time to think thermal. To learn more, check out their website at www.terratherm.com. So fast forward, um, I leave FEMSA and DOT in January of 2021. I, I took a self-imposed real retirement for a few months, but um, then started to talk to Bill again about you know, writing a document that would kind of address these concerns. And, and one, of the, one of the basic foundations of what we were looking to do, we wanted to get input, the contributors from the spectrum of what we're talking about. So the fire service, emergency management, uh, I kind of represented the railroad side, although we had somebody else from the rail side, uh, the chemical industry as well. And then we had uh, another individual that I've known for years who not involved in the emergency response side of it, but, but as a kind of a futurist, somebody that could help us make sure that we weren't missing anything. And we didn't want to bring in anybody who was currently working in any one of those industries because all of those industries between fire service and railroads, uh, fire service and railroads and chemical, they were all very proud of the work that they do. And we thought that if we did that, there would be this defensive posture that might come into play. So I simply started to reach out to a lot of folks like me who were retired that I had worked with during my railroad career of 40 years. And across the board, all were more than willing to participate. And these were folks that had, these were, these were best in class people in, in their specific line of work, whether or not right. it was fire service, emergency management, chemical side, the railroad. I mean, these were, these were household names within those industries. So we started to collaborate. And, you know, what we really started to originally envision as maybe a 10, 12 page white paper ended up being over 70 pages. And what we identified were 17 different topics that we discussed in the document. And then after the discussion, we, we felt it was important to ask kind of important questions about what needed to be evaluated or looked at and determined within each one of those topics. And there were over 120 questions that we ultimately uh, answered or asked, I should say, we didn't ask. And then at the end of the paper, 
we pleaded more or less for, for made a recommendation that there needed to be what we call this conference of hazmat, railroad hazmat thought leaders that could come together and go through this document, have somebody, have somebody facilitate it, kind of bring it together so it made sense. We submitted it to FEMSA. Somebody said, well, why FEMSA? Why not Federal Railroad Administration, which is a valid point. But early on during our discussions, our, our colleagues in the fire service and emergency management side really thought that this might have a place beyond just the railroads. And since FEMSA has kind of this regulatory safety oversight. We're all hazmat. Yeah, yeah that's, that's where we ended up putting it. And so FEMSA reviewed it. And again, many thanks to um uh, to Mr. Schoonover, but uh, FEMSA has agreed to fund this uh, conference. They have partnered with uh, the Department of Energy, their their hammer entity out of Washington State that does a lot of, of hazmat-related training. Uh, we've had at least one initial discussion of kind of a smaller group, but we're hoping, and I think it's it's nothing is for certain yet, but we're hoping that maybe spring of 2024, there will be this uh, gathering of railroad hazmat thought leaders to work through, you know, these 17 issues and, and these questions. The ultimate, what we hope will ultimately be the outcome will be kind of a level playing field. I mean, again, I earlier in the discussion, I laid out all these different variables, you know, and there's so many, you know, each railroad is doing their own thing fire departments based on, you know, funding and capabilities and, you know, do their own thing. Uh, it's, you know, how, how can we get some consistency through right. all of Because right. ultimately it's, it's safety and it's the, the safety of our nation's emergency responders that's, that's so very, very critical behind well, us. Well, one of the things that I picked up out of the, of the uh, white paper um, is, you know, what constitutes the essential minimum baseline for training to be offered to hazmat responders. You know, that that's one question, you know, and then maybe should there be national required curriculum for rail hazmat training for emergency responders? I mean, those were two big takeaways. I was like, you know, those would be really, what should be, what should it cover? And should there be, you know, a national requirement? So to answer uh, the first question, I have an opinion, but ultimately I think, how much training and of what nature is provided really is ultimately going to need to be determined by the emergency response community. I, I, I just, I saw a, a, a social media commentary by a guy who I have tremendous respect for, Rick Ettinger. He was a retired fire chief out of Central Virginia, and he's the chairperson of the NFPA Hazardous Material Committee, and he writes a lot in social media, especially LinkedIn. And his stuff is really fact-based to the point, but he just recently wrote, it was a, talking about training, and, you know, he, he spelled out that, you know, not every fire department, and I'm paraphrasing here, not every fire department has to have its, its whole department trained up to the... Right hazmat technician level. I mean, between operations and awareness, you know, good departments will train to the appropriate level based on what the risk is. And I think that was his point. So, you know, that's that's a roundabout way of, of answering the question is I think there's no one specific answer to how much training should be 
provided. I think it just depends on, you know, how do you, how do you peel back the onion of all those variables and, right. uh, you know, in, and then do the very best you can with typically limitations on funding and time and personnel. Right. Um, you know, should there be a, a required curriculum for rail hazmat? I think I'm, I'm not ready to go that far and say yes, but I do think the railroads need to do a better job of, and they, they do this annually, but I think there needs to be a more concerted effort to ensure that the training that they're providing, whether or not it's, you know, within the firehouse, whether or not it's with the safety train or whether or not they're conducting uh, a tabletop or full-scale exercises, there's some commonality with regards to the curriculum there. I mean, there's a lot of, every railroad is different. So there's a lot of different components that they're going to talk about. But I think within that, there needs to be consistency so that emergency responders or those people that oversee emergency response training know that, you know, the railroads do have some consistency in, in what they train. And I think the same thing goes for, you know, the capability of the railroad personnel that do the training. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, most, most of the folks that are out there today have tremendous qualifications. But, you know, it's, it's, you know, back in my day, I mean, most of us came up through the railroads and, you know, spent a lot of time at derailments and that's how we learned our craft. You see a lot of the, the staffing at the railroad hazardous material groups today have kind of, it's kind of changed and you see more and more folks coming into those roles on the railroad from the emergency response fired from, from fire departments and that, you know, if anything, I do think that the railroads, again, I'm not, I don't, I'm not, I'm not the opinion that there needs to be some hard fact, hard, fast kind of requirement of certification, but I do think there needs to be some consistency in the ability of anyone teaching railroad hazmat training to have achieved some level of competency in being able to train that. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, you know, the, the railroads, class ones, at least they, they all agreed to uh, come up with a common safety training with e-rail safe. Yeah. Right. So it's not too far of a stretch to have a, a common uh, minimum standard for, you know, at least the initial kind of introduction of hazmat and then maybe build on it with other modules or training elements over time. I tell the, <laughs> this goes back a long time, but when I first got my start, uh, doing railroad hazmat work, uh, there was a, a program that was produced by the Association of American Railroads, their hazardous material section. And back, I mean, this, this is how old it was. I mean, it was a five, five slide projector carousels, you know, the round and you had each, had the slides and you put it in a slide projector, but it was back then it was pretty fancy because you put the slide projector in and it had, had sound to it and it would kind of go through, you know, five different elements of railroad response from placarding to shipping documents to initial response. And, you know, I thought about the hundreds of emergency, the hundreds of firehouses that I went into with this program. 
And I looked back and I said, you know, the one thing that was very, very good about that is that all those hundreds of fire stations and firefighters got the exact same training. Right. Yeah. I mean, and it was actually, it was very, very good programming. I mean, it was very informative. It was very educational. The, the whoever produced it, I mean, did a very good job of making sure there was enough fire and brimstone and sirens and things to, to draw the emergency responders into it. But in retrospect, everything, you know, whether or not it was from Indiana to New Jersey, everybody got the same training, the same right. content. And to me, that's important. And I think that's what we have to maybe go back to now. We're much more sophisticated with safety trains and you know, talking about valves and fittings and doing things, but I think we have to get back to a certain amount of consistency in what we provide training on. Well, you know, uh, I think, you know, previous conversation, you and I both, uh, you know, we're CHMM, Certified Hazardous Material Managers. It's a credential in the industry that, you know, for a lot of professionals, carries a lot of weight because you're super knowledgeable about the, the regulations. So whether that's, you know, air and waste and water you, you, and safety, you come across and you learn about all the various aspects of hazmat. And I know you're not an expert in all of it, but you have a, a baseline awareness. But what we're talking about is more specific to emergency response activities around a huge type of a spill, derailment. Do you feel like maybe there ought to be a, uh, an industry credential that could support the rail industry in this space? In, in this area, I do. Uh, again, I think that in this rail hazmat response is, is pretty darn sophisticated. And um, you want to make sure that the folks that are training it have a certain basic understanding. Now, think about who's training. I mean, it's besides the railroads. And so you've got folks from the class ones, but the short line safety Institute where a gentleman by the name of Tom Murda is the executive director there. They do a tremendous amount of training using a safety train with short lines and regional railroads. But then on top of that, you've got a number of private entities that teach either broad based railroad hazmat training or kind of very specific, like, okay, I'm going to teach class on reactives. You know, yeah. how do you do that? And there's, so there's probably some understanding about the backgrounds of the folks from the railroads that train emergency responders, but there's probably less understanding about the background of the people that put out their shingle. You know, guys like me that have, you know, do consulting on the side, you know, well, well you know, how, why should I trust him? You know, he talks a good story, but, you know, you know, can he, you know, what's his experience? What's his education? What's his background? Yeah. You know, has he ever been to a vent and burn? Has he ever been to a derailment? So, um, so there's less, you know, there's less understanding about the ability of some of those folks to, you know, what their backgrounds are. So I, I would be very much in favor of something similar to like, like the CHMM that is very real hazmat specific. Right. Um, you don't have to get it, but if you do get it, it tells somebody that wants to make sure that they're getting a qualified individual, right? A qualified individual that, yeah, okay, this person has sat for the exam. Um, I still, when I think about taking the exam, when I did at the University of Pittsburgh, I still break out in a sweat, you know? So I mean, that was many, many, many years ago. And it's, that was, that was a hard test. Yeah. Um, but so, yeah, I'm, I'm in favor of something like that. That's um, great. Because, you know, to have that level of a credential, 
you know, it's just like with the CHMM, you have to do ongoing, continuing education to maintain your level of awareness and, and, and understanding of what, of what really needs to, to be trained on, which I think would lend itself to this, this concern of, do we have adequate training for all our people responding to real events? Right. So, yeah, I mean, they're going to have to, if they get the credential and they want to maintain that that credential and that credibility in the industry, they would also have to maintain certain levels of continuing education to make sure that they're up on top of the latest and best trends of responding. Yeah. And, you know, I like the voluntary nature of that I go back and again, I, I have, I'm so thankful that, um, and my path in life took me that I'm a railroader. I'm proud to say that I'm a railroader. But again, you know, I understand the defensiveness that that railroads have when it comes to worrying about more onerous regulations. You know, they're they're kind of wringing their hands. Well, what what are we going to see in in the aftermath of East Palestine? You know, besides more than the advance notice of proposed rulemaking that FIMSA put out. You know, so I, I mean, I understand the defensiveness that the railroads have. But, you know, conversely, and I think what you're talking about, Sean, is I like that because I think we all have to continue to get better at what we're doing. And uh, I look at the I look at technology in the railroad and how much technology has changed the railroad industry. And I see how much technology with things such as Ask Rail and and you know how, how much technology is going to change how we train or what the expectation we have of emergency responders is. Yeah. Um, and I just think, you know, you don't have to do it, but if you want to be the best of the best, then, you know, this is something that, that I think is a good idea. Well, I think. Did you know E-Tank is the only environmental rental equipment company in the industry that offers a 100% certified clean guarantee at no additional cost? Well, this gives customers the peace of mind knowing that container contents from the previous renter isn't going to cross-contaminate the contents of the current customer and potentially cause liability concerns. You know, E-Tank also provides a one-of-a-kind complete maintenance program for all its rental items, including liquid-tight roll-off containers, fluid transfer pumps, and filtration system components. To learn more about the types of containers and pumps E-Tank supplies, check out their website at www.etank.net. So the next time you are faced with an environmentally challenging project, give E-Tank a call to help solve your problem. It's just that easy. Nowadays with the, I guess I'll call them the new, the new employees coming into the market. I mean, they're new. They're young professionals. Um, they learn at a different pace in a different way than us older, you know, generation employees. You know, we're read the read the textbook and you know do the homework and memorize this stuff. And nowadays, gamification of training is a big deal for retaining you know employees and kind of that mental reps that you have to consider going through you know, creating visual gamification of training. Now we just did one for the NFPA for putting out an electrical car fire scenario that people have to run through for a firefighter to go. And how do I do this? How do I respond? What should I be thinking about when I go and address a chemical, you know, an electric car fire? Those types of trainings, I think are ways from a technology perspective that 
can revolutionize the way the industry is going to train, learn. And, you know, we're, I think it's, it's the next wave of, you know, kind of making the, the, your, your point here is keeping well, people trained. Kudos to your organization. You know, one of the discussions we had, because I, I, I think you're exactly right. I think, you know, you're doing, you were explaining some virtual reality work you're doing on training for one of the class one railroads and how to understand train concepts information. Yep. I do see that as the future. I mean, again, with this newer generation of emergency responder that's coming in or even railroaders, um, you know, the way that I taught emergency responders, perhaps the way we train emergency responders today may not be suitable for what we need to train and how we need to train in the future in order to attain the level of retention and comprehension that we're trying to achieve. And, you know, whether or not it's virtual reality, augmented reality, mixed reality, I mean, I'm certainly not smart enough to know any of that, but I do know that the success in using virtual reality, augmented reality in training, technical training, I mean, the military has been doing it for a long time, has gotten yeah. hugely successful ratings. Absolutely. Well, I mean, you create a module that anyone in the world literally can, you know, go to, click the link, and they are taking the training. You know, how easy is it would, would be to have a training situation like that where all your modules are virtually training? Every person can go and click and learn and take take the test and, the you know, see if they can pass the uh, the exam, you know, the program. I mean, yeah. then you have more standardization and you can control it a lot better, at least, you know, getting that information, that base level out there. I mean, nothing's going to replace the real action in the field we all know that i mean not, you know you don't get the adrenaline the adrenaline rush like you you know show up on a site that's on fire than just sitting and playing a game i get no i mean but still right i mean it's a big difference but uh, it's a good way to get the mental reps yeah. and learn yes yes and I, you you hit on it i mean how many more individuals you can reach and train and you know train to the level that they need to be trained in a, in a format that allows for greater comprehension so that you don't just take it and then forget about it in a week from now, but in a way that it instills upon you some of the basic elements of what you really need to understand. So I look Absolutely. forward to that, that future. I do. And uh, Absolutely. Um, so, I mean, we're kind of getting toward it. I got another question for you. Should there be an organization or an association assigned to manage this issue? Should should somebody be overseeing this from maybe a government you know, funded organization or some nonprofit that's got some authority or or maybe it's the class ones set up a a partnership, private partnership or something? I mean, what do you guys what do you think about that? Um, well, a couple of thoughts. One, I'm I'm very anxious to hear and understand what will come from this railroad hazmat thought leaders conference because that's right. kind of part of you know that's one of the questions that we we really kind of ask is you know sh should should there be an entity overseeing it um I, I know that you know this is one where depending where you're at in the spectrum of firefighter emergency i mean you might you might have a preference of where it resides you know for for yeah. sort of ownership because of the power of the pen you know then i can do that sure. but i will tell you this <clears throat> i think i'm always going to revert 
to what I think should be a responsibility of the U.S. freight rail industry, because they're the ones that, you know, so freight railroads, we've been moving, railroads have been around for 200 years. We've been moving hazardous materials for about 150, 160 years of that 200 year history. We've been moving products such as liquefied petroleum gas and chlorine and other, you know, toxic poison inhalation hazards, you know, and, uh, class A uh, poison gases and, and, and explosive material for probably beyond more than 90 years, 90 to 100 years of that. So, and, you know, the fact is that the railroads, while you have incidents such as East Palestine that bring an awful lot of focus on rail transportation. Right. Um, but I do think that the railroads have this enviable safety record. When you think that any given day, there's literally thousands of trains moving across this country, moving all types of hazardous materials. I think the Association of American Railroads says, what, 99.998% move from origin to destination without incident. Most of the incidents that happen, and this is not a knock on the chemical industry, because I think they do tremendous work and they have been a great partner with the railroads. But a lot of the incidents that we see are non-accident releases where it's a faulty valve or a fitting on a tank car that causes some kind of release. So it's a, not an accident caused release. Those are more common than the accident caused releases. But I do think the railroads own it. They move it. They have this common carrier responsibility to move it and move it safely. So, you know, I, I think there is a certain responsibility of the rail industry to depending on the outcome of this thought leaders conference to maybe take more of a leadership role and owning more of a nationwide responsibility. When, I, you know, we, uh, we may talk about it, but the railroads have ASPRO, which is this electronic device where you can get train information, rail car information on your cell phone or laptop. Yep. <clears throat> but one, one of the things that the Association of American Railroads did, because there's a, a, a railroad group that did it, they created an advisory committee made up of emergency responders to provide them information about what AskRail should be and what it should contain. And I think, I think regardless of who, who might be responsible for this kind of consortium of thought leaders, um, it always has to, there always has to be this, this very even balance of participation and players that, that the only way something like that's going to be effective, although someone may be responsible for maintaining it and organizing it, everybody has to have a seat at the table and everybody has to have an equal voice and everybody has to be willing to listen to each other. If we're going to make the kind of improvements that we need to continue to make. I agree. And, and I think, I think you're right. It should be somebody uh, or an organization that's formed within the rail industry uh, because Without a conductor, you know, the train's not going in the right direction, you know, <laughs> and if every train company is doing their own thing and no one's really bringing everybody together, you know, we're going to be in the same situation we are now for, you know, I don't see a lot of things changing. I'm just kind of curious your thoughts. I think somebody needs to own it a bit, you know, and, and then I think it'll get legs with everyone's equal participation, like you just mentioned. Skip, hey, great to have you come on the show today. Um, lots of great content. And I think the white paper that you put together is very thought provoking. And I think on point with a lot of the concerns that, you know, I think folks in the rail industry are, are concerned about folks that are in 
the hazmat response, the, the consultants that are supporting this as well. Uh, you know, the fire departments, everybody that's involved, you know, local municipalities, small towns, large towns. I mean, uh, this will be, you know, I think a, a cent, uh, you know, a very important topic that most people are going to really want to kind of see, you know, come to fruition of some sort to be addressing these, these uh, ideas that you put in the white paper. So can't thank you enough for, and your cohorts for putting this together. It's really good. And looking forward to this um, this uh, conference, this thought leadership conference that you're uh, you're proposing to put together sometime first part of next year. I mean, I think that's a, a really great opportunity. Um, and uh, you know, let us know where it's at, and we'll be happy to support you guys. Well, thank you, Sean. And again, I um, you know I I just I was fortunate because you know a group of colleagues and I had the time and the wherewithal to basically you know, bring, bring some of these topics, issues, and questions uh, forward. The time was right to do it. You know, there had been enough changes in, in the rail industry and changes in the emergency response side of the equation, the emergency management side of the equation. And then you have an incident such as uh, what happened in East Palestine, Ohio, that I think really underscores the importance of what we're trying to do in this paper. And again, this is, this is all of this has to be a collaborative collegial right. effort across the yeah. whole spectrum of emergency response, emergency management, the railroads. And uh, if nothing else, you know, I, again, I go back to what I said, it's time to bring the right people together and evaluate and calibrate what it is we're doing to ensure that the nation's emergency responders um, today are receiving, you know, the right kinds of training that we're getting to the right people with the, the right frequency. But then I think as, as you teed up, you know, talk about what's the future of the training going to be, because if, if, you know, if you have, a, if there's a class one who is doing cutting edge stuff with virtual reality, and it, it proves that, uh, you know, the comprehension is much greater, you get to more than, you know, we ought to be jumping on that as an industry and, and really looking to, to take off with that. And same with, you know, with with things such as Asprail. You know, I worry yeah. a little bit. I worry a little bit about technology. If, um, you know, while I think Asprail, I think AAR says there's more than two million recipients, people using Asprail. And I think that's great. I mean, I was you know, when I was with CSX, it was during the developmental times of, of Asprail. But when you look at what happened in East Palestine, the East Palestine Fire Department did not have access, access to Asprail. They do now. And then, you know, my railroad, CSX, just had uh, an incident down in Kentucky, again, a small volunteer fire department. There were a couple loads of sulfur that spilled and caught on fire. And I don't know the answer to this. You know, did they have Asprail? I hope so. Um, so I worry about, you know, technology is great and you can you can talk about how great it is. But if it's not, if it's Accessible. not in the right hands. Right. And if the people that have it don't know how to use it, um, you know, then I think we have to have more discussions about that. I tend to be, I don't think it's very popular, but, you know, there was a, after September 11th, there was actually some work done on a train tracking system that was put into Homeland Security Fusion Centers that allowed these centers to basically track 
in real time trains that moved on the lines. There's part of me, and that system was in in Chemtrek, uh, was in Chemtrek. Yeah. There's part of me that says, you know, are we moving to a point where there needs to be this centralized capability to see the location and understand the contents of every train on every railroad moving hazardous materials? Now the railroad, oh my God, is proprietary information. You know, people will use it for enforcement. I don't. I, I think all of that is more fiction than fact. But there's part of me that says if you reduce who has access to this information but has the technological capability of accessing it right away when you need it and then getting that information to the fire chief or the emergency responder with a matter of, within a matter of minutes if the railroad hasn't done it, then that's something that I think we have to, to, to look at again. Again, it's probably not a very popular you know, concept right now, but I, you know, I remember what, what one railroad did after September 11th, and I know the capabilities there. Yeah. Um, you know, and again, there are hurdles that would have to be jumped over, but, you know, maybe that's a solution down the road. If I, I worry that tech, I worry that we get over the tips of our skis and technology. And, right. You know, right. someone like me, I have limitations on my technological capability. <laughs> That's okay. I mean, there's a lot of us in the same boat, you know, but, um, you know, I think uh, that that VR training type stuff, uh, you know, to give people a view of what that looks like, uh, you know, if, if there's interest at your upcoming conference that you're going to put on to showcase what that would look like for people, let me know. Happy to uh, support yeah. you guys and give you some, you know, examples of what, what it could be and how it works. And, and, um, yeah, it'd be great to see that because let's standardize this in a way that makes sense for people as best we can. I mean, maybe it's just baby steps, right? We got to start somewhere, but you know, it's, it's, it's a good place, but Skip, thanks for coming on to the show. It's great to catch up with you and, and seeing you're doing great in retirement, semi-retirement. Uh, and thank you for your service with the DOT and FEMSA and all the great work you did at CSX over the years. Really appreciate your coming on the show. And I look forward to staying connected with you in the future. Thank you, Sean. I appreciate it. This was this was fun. I enjoyed this. Thanks very much for bringing me on. Absolutely. We'll ha we'll have you back some down down the road. I'm sure. I want to thank our guest Skip Elliott for coming onto the show today. If you want to learn more about Skip and HRE Integrity Consulting Services, you can email him at skip.elliot at hreintegrity.com. We'll also put a link to Skip's contact information on my website. To listen to future environmental transformation podcasts, you can check us out on the major podcast networks or from my website at www.seankgrady.com. And remember, don't forget to follow us and please write a review about this episode. Also, if you're watching on YouTube, please subscribe to the channel. And, you know, hey, thanks for listening. Until next time, make a positive impact in someone's life today and share the good news about this podcast. Thank you.